Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Betteridge. The Asia Foundation held the Australian launch of their 2014 survey of the Afghan people at our centre in an event in early December. The fascinating results sparked debate and discussion, with Professor William Maley from ANU joining the Asia Foundation panellists to discuss what the survey results suggest about the current mood in Afghanistan and the country's future. Okay, so good afternoon everyone. We might make a start. Um, welcome to the Crawford School of Public Policy and for those of you not from the university, welcome to the ANU. Uh, my name is Matthew Dornan. I'm a research fellow with the Development Policy Centre, which is a think tank um, which focuses on aid and development and is based within the Crawford School. Uh, let me begin by acknowledging um, and celebrating the traditional owners of the land on which we now meet, the Ngunnawal people, uh, and by paying respects to their elders past and present. Shortly, I'll introduce the chair for today. Um, Before I do, though, um, I'd like to thank the Asia Foundation for approaching the centre to host this event. Um, This is the second year um, that we've had the Asia Foundation present its findings from the survey of the Afghan people. Um, This time the audience is perhaps a little smaller, um, probably due to the weather, um, so apologies about that. Uh, Nevertheless, it's always good to um, hear more about a part of the world which... um, probably does not receive the attention it deserves uh, in Australia. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge the presence in the audience of the Afghan ambassador, um, Nasir Ahmad Andisha. Uh, Welcome um, and thank you for coming. Um, The chair for today's event is Professor Ian McAllister, who is a distinguished professor of political science at the ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences. He asked that I not elaborate anymore, so I will not. Um, Please join me in welcoming Professor McAllister. Thanks, Matthew. And I didn't want him to elaborate because nobody's interested in me. They want to hear the the speakers. So welcome to this seminar on the most recent Asia Foundation survey of Afghanistan. Uh, We have four speakers um, this evening. We have a presentation and then a commentary. Uh, The presentation will last about 25 minutes and then the commentary 20 minutes and that should leave us a generous 20 minutes for questions and discussions at the end. To start the event off, let me introduce uh, David Arnold. He's president of the Asia Foundation. He's been president since 2011 and before that he was president of the American University in Cairo and he'll say a few words about the history of the Asia Foundation and the background to these various surveys. So, David. Well, thank you very much, and let me uh, express our appreciation to our uh, colleagues uh, here at ANU for hosting uh, us and for the opportunity to share the results of this year's survey of the Afghan people uh, uh, here at the ANU campus. Um, the Asia Foundation has a long history of work on and in Afghanistan. Uh, it started when the foundation was established in 1954, and the foundation uh, maintained an active uh, office and presence there until 1980, when uh, you know, the Soviet uh, occupation uh, required us to relocate to Peshawar, where we continued to work with the refugee community for a number of years. And as soon as the changes occurred uh, in the post-Taliban period, uh, the foundation re-established an office in 2002. The work that we do there uh, is uh, concentrated in four broad areas. We do a lot of work on governance, governance and law, uh, which is a major focus of the foundation's work across all 18 countries where we operate. 
we have a major emphasis on women's empowerment, uh, which includes work with the Ministry of Women's Affairs, but also with a variety of uh, women's civil society organizations. Um, we have a program focused on strengthening education in Afghanistan, and we have a very interesting set of program activities centered around Islam and development, really looking at the, the role of uh, traditional religious leaders in uh, both uh, rights and in uh, and, uh, local development activities. Uh, at this point, the Afghanistan office is actually one of the largest offices in the Asia Foundation. Uh, and the work that we do there is, I think, uh, uh, similar in many respects to work that is underway in, as I mentioned, uh, each of the 18 countries where we operate. One of the signature initiatives of the foundation in Afghanistan has been conducting an annual survey of the Afghan people. And as you'll hear from my colleagues, uh, this is the most comprehensive uh, survey that's undertaken in Afghanistan. Uh, it includes um, all th respondents in all 34 provinces across the country, and as, uh, we're very proud of the fact that this year is the largest uh, sample size, uh, covering more than 9,000 uh, interviews. And over the 10 years that we've been doing this, uh, we've interviewed more than 60,000 Afghans to get their views on a wide range of issues on political developments, on economic uh, developments, on social changes, <coughs> on a variety of issues that you're going to hear more about. Um, the fact that we've been doing this for 10 years means that we've been able to track how views and opinions and attitudes have changed over a period of time and also to get a sense of people's perceptions about the security situation, about the delivery of public services, about their confidence in public institutions, about their concerns in terms of uh, uh, economic uh, situation, a wide range of issues. And I think it's this longitudinal perspective that's really particularly valuable both to people in the Afghanistan government uh, who use this uh, data in terms of their uh, decision-making and policy-making processes, as well as to people in the international community, including um, NGOs like the Asia Foundation as well as uh, bilateral and multilateral donors that are supporting activities in Afghanistan. So with that as a, as a bit of background, I really want to uh, move fairly quickly to introduce my two colleagues who have traveled here from Kabul to be here to present and share this year's uh, uh, survey findings. Uh, Judge Najula Yubi is the deputy country representative of our office in, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, she joined the foundation uh, to head up our uh, series of activities under our Women's Empowerment Program. Uh, she's uh, served previously with the Independent Election Commission, uh, and she was uh, a, a prosecutor and a judge in, in Afghanistan. Uh, she actually, this is her second uh, stint with the Asia Foundation. We lost her very briefly to George Soros, but we recaptured her, and uh, we're delighted to have her back in her new capacity. We're also very pleased to have Zach Warren, uh, who is the Director of Survey and Research Activities and Programs uh, in our Afghanistan office. This is the second year that Zach has been involved in the survey, so he brings a two-year longitudinal perspective uh, to this. Um, uh, he's a social psychologist by training, um, and he's been involved in dozens of international research projects. Um, his background uh, is undergraduate from Erlin College and uh, is currently working on his uh, PhD from Georgetown University in social psychology. So I'm going to turn to, I think, is who's 
going to go first. Zach is going to go first and then Najla. So uh, please welcome my colleagues from Afghanistan. We're very excited to present the findings this year. Uh, to start things off, I thought it'd be good to have some visuals. So we have a short video. I'll pause it there just because uh, I think it's a heavy video, so the computer's having some trouble. But the summary of it, uh, we're going to jump right into, and we don't have a lot of time. So we're going to cover as much ground as we can so we can leave time for your questions. So we're going to cover the methods briefly, go over some of the key findings, and then have a short reflection and open things up. Our methods have to be complex, because Afghanistan is a complex environment. It's extremely challenging. It's challenging especially to get, ac to get access to women. We do this in a, in a, a three-pronged strategy. We have 9,271 Afghans represented this year from all 34 provinces. And we try to get a wide range of ethnic groups, and we use randomization as much as possible. Our main sample consists of random identified sampling points. But in addition to that, we have, as always, a challenge of accessing those highly inaccessible areas that are very insecure. This is a challenge for all survey companies in Afghanistan. How do you access an area that's controlled by the Taliban? The way we approximate it is using a technique called intercept interviews. Intercept interviews are when you intercept a person traveling to or from a highly insecure sampling point. So these are still randomly identified sampling points, and these are persons traveling to or from them. The downside of this is that they're all males from those sampling points. Because of cultural reasons, it's hard to get access to women traveling or women from those those areas. But what we do then is approximate the direction of influence, not having the highly insecure sampling points in our survey by comparing the main sample, which is randomly identified, with these intercept interviews. So that's the way we 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 get at those that's the way we incorporate those voices. In addition, we've added some qualitative research this year. And the qualitative research is intended to help us understand how Afghans are interpreting the questions that we ask. Are they interpreting the questions in the way that we intend? When we say free and fair elections, what do they interpret by that? When we say <coughs> democracy, how do they interpret that? These are the sorts of questions we answer through qualitative means. We include a wide range of ethnic groups, and we include a wide range of ethnic groups among our interviewers as well. We train the interviewers across all 34 provinces, and we monitor the trainings as much as possible. We've used GPS, and we've given uh, our, our interviewers GPS uh, mobile phones, or GPS-enabled mobile phones, so we can track the coordinates of where they're, where they're traveling and where they're located. For highly insecure areas, this isn't possible for security reasons. We always do same-sex researchers. This is really important for getting access to those difficult areas. When, if you have males interviewing males and females interviewing females, and more importantly, if you have interviewers from the districts and from the provinces where they're interviewing, it's much easier to get access to those people's opinions. 
This is really, really key. If you take someone from Kabul and you send them to Zabul, you, you're putting their life in, in danger and you're getting biased responses in terms of the, the public opinions. Security and remoteness are the main two challenges for any research in Afghanistan. And as I said, we overcome some of these challenges through intercept interviews and through an extensive randomization process by choosing those districts that are randomly identified and assigning people from those districts to do the interviews. We've instituted a 24-step monitoring system. And this is really important. Quality control in one of the most difficult parts of the world for research is extremely important. So we prioritize that. We have, have third-party monitoring for half the country and for all of the trainings. And then often we have monitoring of the monitors, just to double check. Some key findings. We're going to go over a few key areas. Governance, economy, security, and then finally women's issues. Every year we ask this question. Overall, do you think the country is moving in the right direction or in the wrong direction? And this year, 55% of Afghans say that it's moving in the right direction. And 40% say it's moving in the wrong direction. This represents a downtick from last year in terms of overall confidence. Importantly, we conducted the survey this year immediately following the runoff election, but before the audit and before the election results were announced. So if you're an Afghan, at the time we were interviewing you, you may have just voted and you didn't know who was <coughs> going to win the election, but probably you were optimistic that whoever you voted for was going to win and the, the full allegations of fraud around the election hadn't yet surfaced or come to full fruition. And the period of the audit hadn't delayed the process or stalled it. So there wasn't that uncertainty. Had we conducted the interviews even two weeks later, we might have had a different result. When we ask then, what are some of the reasons that you say the country is moving in the right direction or wrong direction? The reasons for right direction are primarily reconstruction, rebuilding, and in our qualitative interviews, most people identify these as physical construction, infrastructure, roads, buildings, things that you can see to be infrastructure. And then secondarily, good security. <coughs> when we ask about reasons for wrong direction, insecurity tops the list. And this represents a significant increase over last year. More Afghans who say the country is moving in the wrong direction cite insecurity as the reason than last year. Corruption, unemployment, bad economy, these also are very significant. And when you combine bad economy and unemployment, you can see that economic issues are extremely important in terms of what Afghans are thinking about right now. When we ask then, what do you think are the biggest problems facing Afghanistan as a whole, nationwide? Insecurity tops the list as well as unemployment and poor economy, followed by corruption. When we ask then about local problems, what are the biggest problems in your local area? Unemployment tops the list. And this is followed by electricity. Importantly, electricity has improved. Electrification nationally has improved, especially in cities like Missouri Sharif, Kabul, Herat, Polyhomri. Many of these areas now have 24-hour access to electricity. At the same time, when you have partial electricity in different parts of the country, many people are less satisfied and more concerned 
about electrification than before. If you have some electricity and you go out and you buy a refrigerator and then the electricity is off and on, you're even less satisfied and electricity is seen in your eyes to be even more of a problem. That's one interpretation. In terms of security, overall, fear for personal safety is on the rise. When we ask specifically, how often do you feel afraid for your safety or for that of your family? More Afghans say that they fear for their own safety or for that of their family sometimes, often, or always this year than in any previous year in the survey. When we ask about perceptions of fear in different situations, the highest rates of fear are when traveling and when encountering foreign forces. And the lowest rates are when encountering the ANA or ANP. And that's encouraging in some ways. Fear when voting, interestingly, has let me see if I yeah. Fear when voting has actually decreased. And that may suggest uh, or may be indicative of some of the efforts of the ANP to provide security for the elections. Again, this was conducted immediately after the runoff election and before the audit. Perceptions of the ANP or the Afghan National Police and the Afghan National Army, we've always asked about every year. And we ask specifically, do you think that they are honest and fair? And do you think that they help to provide security? Perceptions of the Afghan National Army have always been higher than the perceptions of the Afghan National Police. People often have more contact, however, with the Afghan National Police than the Af Afghan National Army. And overall, you see a general trend upwards for both. It's encouraging, particularly for the ANA. When we ask who provides the most security in your area, and we provide pictures to il help illustrate this, the ANP in the main sample are considered to provide the most security for about, this is among 50% of the, the respondents. This is the Afghan National Police. Now when we ask about when we ask our intercept interviews the same question, again, these are people traveling to highly insecure areas, the importance of armed opposition groups, or AOGs, becomes much more significant, as well as the ANA. Every year we also ask about crime and violence. And we ask, did you experience crime? And if you did, who did you take it to to resolve it? And 15.6% of our sample this year said that they or a family member had experienced crime. Of those, 69% took that to an outside institution to resolve it, such as the police or a local Malik or Han or Mullah or something like that. The ANP has, in both cases this year and last year, topped the list in terms of the place where people take their problems to get them resolved, followed by the Shura or the local elders in their community. We also ask about sympathy for armed opposition groups. Now this is sort of a proxy for asking, do you support the Taliban? But you can't quite ask that in Afghanistan for various security reasons. So you have to ask it indirectly. And instead of saying Taliban, you say, for example, armed opposition groups. And instead of saying, do you support? We say, do you sympathize? Now the challenge here is that sympathy is not always support. You can sympathize with a group, but not support them. When we look at those who say they feel a lot of sympathy for armed opposition groups, which can include the Taliban or other insurgent groups, 
sympathy has decreased steadily since 2009, from 22% of our sample to 7% of our sample this year. When we ask then if they said they feel, uh, well, it, we also ask overall, why do you think that armed opposition groups are fighting the Afghan government? The top two reasons this year and last year are because of the presence of foreign troops, one, and two, because they are seeking power or seeking to gain power. So it'll be interesting how this changes next year and the year after when the presence of foreign troops is no longer uh, as visible. When we ask about, um, by the way, when we ask them if they feel sympathy, why? The top two reasons for why they feel some sympathy, either a little bit or a lot, the reasons, the top two, are because they're Muslims and because they're Afghans. So they're identity-based responses. Every year we also ask about <coughs> perceptions of whether reconciliation efforts between the Afghan government and armed opposition groups will help to stabilize the country. And the language of this question is important. We say, do you think that these efforts will help to stabilize the country. We don't say, do you think they will stabilize the country, but do you think they will help? And 73% of Afghans this year say that they will. <coughs> it's an increase over 68% last year. Economy, again, as we see, was a major issue in terms of what's worrying or troubling Afghans. And we asked a question this year, do you think that you, for you and your family, financially speaking, things are better this year or last year, or is there no difference? Twice as many Afghans said that last year was better for them economically than this year, and 37% said there was no difference at all. But there are some important changes taking place that we've been observing, and we're just going to highlight a few of the interesting ones. Women in our survey appeared to be contributing to household income more and more. So 22% of women now, in 22% of the households, women contribute to the household income. That's an increase over 14% in 2009. And interestingly, when we ask the question, how do you describe yourself? Are you a student? Are you retired? Are you a housewife? Are you working? The lights are coming down. This is getting romantic. This is actually one of the most interesting findings that we had this year, and we didn't expect it. <laughs> was, yeah, don't fall asleep on me. More women this year than ever before are describing themselves as housewives even if they're married than before. I'm oh, sorry, and more women are describing them as uh, unemployed than as housewives, meaning more women see themselves as contributing to the workforce now than before, even if they're married. So on governance, just some highlights. Every year we ask about elections, if there is an election, um, we ask them their attitudes about it. And also we ask them if they think that the recent election, in this case the presidential election, will make their life better, worse, or have no difference at all. And two-thirds of Afghans 
say that the presidential election will make their life better, and two-thirds also said that they felt it was free and fair. So these are encouraging. We ask, for those who didn't vote, we ask, why didn't you vote? And the primary reasons given were not having a voting card, and then also resistance from family members. But when we look at the, the breakdown of resistance from family members by gender, we see an interesting pattern. Women, 25% of those women who didn't vote, cite resistance from family members as the second most important reason. <coughs> and among men, it was only 3%. So there's a real difference here in terms of uh, perceptions and, and reasons for voting or not voting. Sorry. Jump right That's in. That's it. So corruption. Everybody's always interested in corruption, and this year there was a spike in perceptions of corruption as a major problem at, in daily life. In our survey, over 50%, to be specific, 55% of the, our respondents say that they paid a bribe to at least one institution or organization in the past year. Among men, it's over 70%, and among women, it's a little over 30%. And this year, 62% of Afghans say that corruption is a quote-unquote major problem, as opposed to a minor problem or not a problem at all in their daily life. We've calculated a corruption rate. Uh, this is a rate at which somebody pays a bribe to a particular institution or authority if they've had contact with that institution or authority. And we then looked at this over time, since 2010, to see where the biggest changes are in the corruption rate. And it appears to be that corruption has increased significantly, 12% actually, among local officials and municipal officials in the district office and so on. It's decreased, and this is encouraging, um, for admissions to schools and universities, and certainly the number of schools and universities has increased nationwide in Afghanistan. It's also decreased among the Afghan National Police since 2010. The highest rates of corruption overall uh, are those encountering the judiciary and those encountering local officials. And as you know, uh, or may know, President Ghani has made judicial reform one of his primary uh, key points, and also he's opened the investigation into the Kabul bank fraud. So he's taking some efforts. We also ask every year about satisfaction with different services, government services in particular. And satisfaction rates with children's education has always been very high. It's increased over time significantly. And satisfaction with electricity is at one of it, it it's a low it's at a low. It has increased over time since two thousand six, but it's still fairly low among this battery of questions. And again, electricity overall has increased and yet satisfaction with electricity has decreased. And this may apply to a lot of our questions. Importantly, this is a perception survey. And perceptions are inherently riddled with complexities, because humans are complex. So if somebody says that insecurity, they're more, for example, afraid for their personal safety, it could be as a result of real changes in the ground in terms of security. And certainly the civilian casualty rates have increased. And you can read in, in publicly available NATO reports that fighting in highly populated areas between the Afghan National Security Forces and armed opposition groups has increased this year compared to previous years. 
At the same time, if a neighboring province is more secure than yours, that relative difference affects your perception. This is a really interesting question for some of our well, various countries. We ask, after asking about a series of uh, government services and if, <coughs> if they are aware of government reconstruction projects in their area, we ask, them, ask our respondents, who do you think funded these projects in your area? Every year, Afghans cite the United States as number one. Now keep in mind that many of them don't know, and so they'll, they'll give kind of a best guess. But this year, we see a really interesting change. The United States drops 12%. And 28% of Afghans cite the United States as the primary funder, down from 40%. And the number of Afghans who cite the Afghan government as the primary donor or funder has increased from 10% to 22%. Another really curious change this year is that for the first time in our survey, and again, we've asked this question exactly the same way, every year of the survey, Afghans, 8% now, are saying that the people themselves are funding these projects. In terms of confidence in different institutions and organizations, Afghans appear to be most confident in the media, and it represents an increase this year over last year. 73% say that they feel some or a lot of confidence in the media this year compared to only 67% last year. Confidence in religious leaders also increased. This may be related to the role that both have played in the elections and the buildup to the elections. At the lowest level in our battery of items, and we have about 13 different items in this battery of confidence, at the lowest level is confidence in the parliament and confidence in government ministers. When you see 47% you should, you should see this relativistically in terms of how it relates to confidence in other things in that battery. The fact that it's, at, that it's lowest in the battery is really quite telling. TV ownership at the same time has increased 6% since last year. 58% of Afghans own a television compared to 52% last year. When we, ask, when we ask Afghans, where do you, where, what's your primary source of news and information? Most still say the radio, 77%, followed by television, 58%. Internet is 6%. That's increased since last year. And if I had to make a guess, I think it's going to increase quite significantly next year. When we break it down by urban and rural, we see that there's a huge urban-rural gap here. And televisions primarily in the urban areas as a source of news and information, and radio is in the urban area or in the rural areas. Some highlights on women and girls and their issues. Uh, we ask every year, what do you think are some of the biggest problems facing uh, women? And the number one issue cited this year, and number one problem was education and literacy, 40%. It's increased since 28% last year. Unemployment and domestic violence are also important, but I want to pay a little bit of attention here to domestic violence. This is the number of, uh, this is a single response uh, uh, analysis. The number of women who cite domestic violence as the major problem facing women has increased, in fact it's doubled since 2006. So 11% of women now cite domestic violence as the biggest problem facing them. 
When we ask about whether women should work outside the home or not, most Afghans, 68%, say yes, women should work outside the home. But when we break it down by where they think it's acceptable for a woman to work outside the home, <clears throat> you see that the army and police and NGOs are at the bottom of the list, and at the top of the list are schools and hospitals and clinics. We also ask if people if people believe that men and women should have equal access to education, and we break this down by different levels. When we ask about Islamic madrasa education, Afghans are primarily supportive of men and women having equal access. But when we get to studying abroad on a scholarship, support drops dramatically. And we broke this down because we wanted to see where's the threshold of support exactly, and it appears that the threshold may have something to do with whether you travel or not. You see that support for women having equal access to a university in their province is 72%. But when we ask about studying in another province without specifying the type of school, only 45% are supportive. So I'm going to turn this over now to Judge Najla to make a few commentaries. Thank you so much for um, for this event, uh, for organizing this event, particularly for organizers. Thank you so much. Um, four issues that Zach already mentioned that the country is facing as a whole, uh, the problem the country facing, uh, economy, uh, secure insecurity, economy, corruption, and challenges that women facing. I'd like to just put some uh, kind of uh, a little bit reflection on these issues. Um, in the 10 years survey that this was a 10 year that we are conducting the survey, uh, you have, I'm sure that you have seen lots of progresses, um, the, the perceptions and the, the issues that have been changed. Like for instance, in 2004, when we started, and uh, Professor, you were also part of this program on 2004, that we didn't have elected government, we didn't have elected president, national security forces, we didn't have media, national media, independent media, parliament, women in parliament. Most of the things were not just in place. Um, um, and even we, we didn't have that even as an Afghans to, to didn't have enough courage to be part of the public life and be uh, independently work uh, without the support of international community, which I'm sure that now we are, we are able to do so. Um, but uh, I would like to just mention that um, uh, despite of all of these issues, uh, the insecurity will be remain as a problem in the coming future, although the uh, national security forces that they have performed extremely well during the election processes in Afghanistan, uh, which as a result of the performance of the Afghan national security forces, uh, we have elected government, uh, elected uh, president, and we have uh, also, this is the first time ever we have, fortunately we have a, a peaceful trans transition of the po political power in Afghanistan. Um, economy also, um, I think this is uh, uh, as a big problem for the whole country. Um, but also, uh, this, this is the first time that um, the new government, the unity government, already made uh, significant uh, steps towards, uh, uh, I mean, um, 
particularly the president, uh, uh, Dr. Ghani, uh, he already uh, 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 had a statement of supporting the growth of the private sector and also the economic sector in Afghanistan, <coughs> which is a very promising for us. At the same time, he had a very strategic trip uh, outside of Afghanistan, which is very interesting to see that this is the first time ever the our president went not uh, to the neighboring countries or to the donor country, for instance, in China, not asking for money, but asking for investment in Afghanistan and also in China. This is also another another issue that I was thinking to mention. Um, on corruption, uh, Zach already mentioned that there was a, uh, for the new government, there is a priority uh, the, to bring the reform on the judiciary, which is the, you have seen, which is the most corrupt um, institution uh, in Afghanistan, uh, based on our findings of the survey, um, and also bringing the long-standing um, uh, case of Kabul Bank uh, on the top of the, his priority, and at least uh, took some steps to to make sure that the, they are fighting, which it shows that the political willingness there for the uh, uh, fighting against corruption, but at the same time, um, uh, it's a little bit worries me as an Afghan to see that whether we have, uh, if you're opening a front line, uh, four or five front line at the same time, whether we have the capacity, the political willingness, not only from the president himself, but also from the um, other parties or stakeholders around national and international. Um, and uh, the woman issues that um, already Zach mentioned, that the woman facing biggest problem, um, I'm sure that most of the people will see this as negative, that the woman, uh, uh, the respondent saying that 40% of the respondents saying that the biggest problem uh, woman facing is education and illiteracy. I don't think it's, uh, it's a problem uh, from my perspective as an Afghan. Uh, I see that the more people, the demand is very high, and people now see it as a, as a problem because this was not the case in the earlier years. At the same time, for the domestic violence, uh, when uh, uh, Zach already mentioned that 22% of the people saying that the uh, biggest problem facing women is the domestic violence, but I think this, is, this was there already in the, in the previous years as well. But the only thing and the most important part is that the people are uh, confident to report these issues uh, as a problem and they see this, this, uh, this uh, domestic violence as a problem. Um, as well as the woman who already mentioned that they are contributing to the household uh, income, which it become, uh, although they're uh, maybe um, physically not contributing, but they don't see themselves anymore a housewife, which is, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, progress and optimism. Um, I will end uh, my thoughts by saying that I'm optimistic for the future of Afghanistan. And I'm sure that without the support of the international community, still we need to, to go a long way. And particularly 56% uh, of our um, uh, respondents says that they, uh, they think that Afghan national security forces particularly need the, uh, the support of foreign, uh, foreign, so, uh, force, uh, foreign sources. At the same time, I think the women's issues, the education is the first which you, based on our findings, is the key for, uh, for development uh, and uh, which definitely will lead them to economic empowerment. Thank you so much.
can I begin by saying what a pleasure it is to uh, share a platform with colleagues from the, the Asia Foundation? Uh, we had the privilege at the Asia Pacific College of Diplomacy, which I direct, of hosting Dr. George Varagos uh, as a visiting fellow some years ago, who had been the uh, the country uh, director in Afghanistan. And the work that the foundation has been doing over a very long period of time has contributed mightily not only to our analytical understanding of Afghanistan, but also to bettering the lives of ordinary people in the country, which is a very important aspect of the programs which it pursues. I want to offer a range of comments, uh, some of which relate to specific data in the survey and some of which relate to broader impressions which I derived by looking at a range of the data points that are recorded in, in the survey report. Uh, the, the first observation I'd make is that I think over time uh, an impression that emerges very strongly from the successive reports of Asia Foundation survey is how important globalisation is proving to be in changing uh, Afghanistan. I suspect when we look back on the decade that's just completed, we will actually come to the conclusion that it's not been foreign aid or even change in the political system that has really transformed Afghanistan, but the impact of globalisation on a country which was extremely isolated from those kind of forces in the period up to 2001. The data dealing with access to a media such as television and mobile phones provides one point of insight into why this might be the case. But another element which didn't come out specifically in the data that were on the screen but which is documented through other sources is the very significant youth bulge in Afghanistan at the moment. The figures suggest that perhaps 70% of the population is under the age of 25. Uh, which means that increasingly we are dealing with people in Afghanistan who have had socialisation experiences of a, of a kind that no previous Afghan generation has ever encountered. And for that reason, I think it's actually rather important to dispel impressions of Afghanistan that come up in popular media all too frequently, which go back to the 19th century and the First and Second Anglo-Afghan Wars as the point of departure. We would never try to understand modern Britain by going back to the reign of Queen Victoria and taking that as our point of departure, and yet we do the equivalent all too frequently when looking at Afghanistan. Now, I would have to say some of my Afghan friends have been complicit in this because when a camera comes along, they do like to be photographed holding a 10 rupee jazale in the air, but that's not what daily life means for most um, ordinary people. And, uh, and the Asia Foundation survey better than I think any other data source brings out the complexity of these, these patterns of uh, engagement in um, everyday life. And urbanisation, the youth bulge and globalisation together are producing very rapid social change indeed. And I think that helps explain why um, issues such as domestic violence are increasingly figuring as concerns. People are prepared now to talk about issues that even five to ten years ago they would not have been prepared to touch. Uh, and that, that's a positive kind of development. Having said all that, the last couple of weeks in Kabul have been extremely violent. There have been lots of attacks going on uh, and uh, a lot of lives have been lost in the course of those attacks. And what I think that suggests is that, oddly enough, the kind of developments that are well documented in the survey uh, are a source of alarm to those who are opponents of the the Afghan government. And to the extent that in the aftermath of the election that's just been held in 
uh, Afghanistan, there is now a political dispensation, a national unity government that looks as if it have reasonable prospects of sticking for the future since none of the major participants have any real political alternative to pursue. It becomes more important than ever for the opponents of the government to do what they can militarily to try to blunt the momentum of this transition and puncture what's uh, being attempted. So I think that we're going to see an odd confluence of circumstances in which, on the one hand, there are a lot of positive sentiments being voiced by the population, but at the same time there are a lot of negative developments blighting the lives of ordinary people, because that's what uh, the armed opposition needs to do if it's to be able to preserve its position at all. Now, uh, the reason that I share in the long run uh, Nachla's confidence about Afghanistan is that when we look across a range of indicators which are captured in the, um, the survey, we see things that are broadly encouraging. Um, let me just make one comment about survey research in Afghanistan, by the way, before I go into that. There is a temptation in some circumstances to say you can't do it. I think the approach that the Asia Foundation has taken um, shows that you certainly can try your best to do it and to get meaningful results. And from my point of view, it is certainly preferable to have these kind of results than to have the alternative narrative, which was, well, my cousin was in the market and he was talking to the Chakada from the man who worked for the for the, the custodian of the mosque, and he said that his grandmother had said that she didn't like the way the government was going. Well, that's not social science in a very useful sense of the term. Uh, and that's all too often what occurs in journalistic narratives as an alternative to this kind of uh, research. And if we look over time at some of the key measures that are documented, and we had a number of, uh, of uh, line charts which brought this out, what we actually see is findings which I think broadly coincide with what would be the impressionistic uh, senses of experienced analysts looking at what's going on broadly in Afghanistan at those particular times, together with an absence of spectacular and dramatic fluctuations of the sort that would suggest that something fishy is going on in the uh, particular survey. And to, to the extent that people um, might try to suggest that we're looking at, at, at conspiracies to make things look good. It would have to be the most wonderful conspiracy of all time to be able to produce, over time, a pattern of these kind of, of results which are, are, are broadly uh, um, confirmatory of what, uh, what earlier responses might have suggested. Now, uh, having said that, where individual questions are concerned, I think one can still very usefully interrogate exactly how questions might be understood by respondents and that's where I think the qualitative dimension of the survey this year is very important. A number of us down through the years have looked at some of the re results uh, with respect to attitudes to the Afghan National Police and uh, taken a deep breath because uh, very few reports of the uh, Afghan National Police done by specialists on policing have been that positive but when one talks to Afghans about um, their attitudes to the police, it begins to come out that there can be a number of different ways in which people might understand questions of this kind. On the one hand, a, a strongly positive response in a question about policing might actually be because people are responding to the idea of policing as a good within their environment, 
rather than necessarily vindicating how the, the police are going in a particular way. Uh, but another point worth bearing in mind, and this has been made emphatically to me by a number of Afghans, is that the casualty rate, the level of mortality among, in, within the Afghan National Police is higher than in almost any other social organisation or political organisation in the country. And in that sense, people may be judging the police not in terms of the performance in policing by the organisation as a whole, but but driven by a sense of sympathy with a cousin who might have been assassinated or blown up when queuing to join the police. So this, I think, stands out as one example of how complex some of the um, interpretation of questioning can be in this sort of context, and, and uh, it's, it's a very positive development that, that the qualitative analysis is now accompanying the quantitative analysis. Uh, when one looks across a range of variables, and coming back to the point I was making earlier, the 55% of people feeling that the country is heading in the right direction is a positive sign. Another positive sign comes from the questions on democratic commitment. And this year the question was expressed in rather elaborate terms to convey uh, in, in easily understandable senses what the um, survey interprets democratic commitment to me. And here what one saw was that 50% of respondents were somewhat satisfied and 23% very satisfied uh, with, uh, with the operation of the democratic system, which coincides with my sense that ordinary people actually value very much the opportunity given to them to change the rules without bloodshed. Because Afghanistan has had a long period of recent history in which people have been denied that opportunity. Uh, and it's one that can actually be very important in these kinds of circumstances. Um, it's also the case that when one looks at the uh, issue, the, the question of um, reconciliation, one finds that whilst there's a broad sympathy for re reconciliation um, efforts, the sense that it can help the, the, the uh, political transition, 73% of people agree with that, 66% of the respondents express no sympathy at all for the armed opposition groups. And I think this is actually very important to note because particularly in Pakistan, which I visited at the end of October, there's still a very casual disposition to treat the armed opposition groups as if they are the legitimate representatives of the largest single Afghan ethnic group, the Pashtuns, 42% um, of the population within, uh, as measured by the survey here. And yet um, the uh, lack of sympathy, even in Pashtun-dominated areas for the armed opposition group, suggests that this is a very dangerous approach to take indeed. My suspicion is that uh, people have uh, a general sympathy with the idea of reconciliation. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're confident that reconciliation efforts are going to deliver too many fruit. Uh, and certainly people have been talking for seven to eight years now about reconciliation efforts, but not too much has, uh, has, has come of them. The final points that I'd want to make uh, come back to Zach's point about the, the possibility of sympathising with groups without supporting them, and I think that's absolutely true. And it, it could mean that the 7% to strongly um, support the armed opposition groups re represent an absolute ceiling here. But I'd warn as well that... You can also support groups without sympathising with them. You can support groups because you think they're going to come out on top. This is prudential support rather than normative support. But I think that's probably the single greatest danger in Afghanistan at the moment. And this is to do with the social psychology of the population more broadly. If a large number of people 
come to feel for whatever reason that a group like the Taliban will come out on top. Past experience would teach them that it is wise to reposition oneself politically before one's the last person left standing in defence of the current dispensation. And this has been modelled in social science terms by scholars like Timo Kuran and Kassanstein, who've talked about uh, the dangers of informational and reputational cascades that can lead to very sudden shifts in prudential alignments because of people's calculations about what the future holds and how other people might position themselves as well. So in that sense, I think the broad sympathies which are captured by this year's survey give one a positive feel about the trajectory of the situation in Afghanistan. And interestingly, I took a young ANU early career researcher to Afghanistan about a month ago who then went on to the occupied territories. And he sent me an email the other day to the effect that within Afghanistan he felt that the mood was vastly more positive than he subsequently encountered when he got on to, uh, to the Arabic-speaking Middle East areas where he's working. Um, but, on the other hand, I think we're also looking at a period in which some personal somatic violence is likely to rise sharply for the reasons that I've already articulated. And if there is a sense that Afghanistan is really going to be dumped by the wider world and that interference from Pakistan uh, is going to be ramped up even further, then the danger is that there'll be a tipping point which is passed. And if that were to happen, then I think we could be looking at a very unsettling situation indeed. But I'd like to conclude by saying once again what a uh, pleasure it's been to be able to share this platform with colleagues from the Asia Foundation. And uh, I don't, do think that the work that's been put in over a very long period of, of time now in doing this sampling and, and, uh, and accumulating the results which the, the samples uh, provide um, has been of inestimable benefit for people who are trying to get a nuanced understanding of what the situation in Afghanistan holds. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. Well, we have about 15 minutes for questions and comments. Uh, if you could identify yourself when you ask a question and keep it as brief as possible, and then we'll maximise the discussion. Who would like to start? Oh. Yes. Sorry, this is a really dry question. It seems that everyone else is still contemplating matters. Uh, you, you sort of identified a reporting effect as being what might be driving the increased incidence of uh, violence against women that was coming out in the survey. I was just wondering if there are any objective measures which we could calibrate the survey data against to get, us, to get a sense of whether this is a reporting effect or whether there is some actual rise in violence against women going on. For example, in parts of the country, might we be able to trust uh, prosecutions or data from the courts uh, or uh, data from the medical system, from uh, something like that, to provide us uh, some sort of sense of whether the survey data are accurate or whether it's just a case, as you said, of people being uh, more comfortable discussing these matters. Um, actually, um, uh, as uh, based on our findings, you see that confident on the media and religious scholars uh, have gone up, uh, like uh, uh, 70 to uh, 73 percent on the media, and also 
70% on the religious scholars. Uh, I think one of the issues that the people got informed and specifically for the sensitive issues like uh, violence against women and particularly the elimination of violence against women law was attacked and that's why in many cases that's why uh, uh, that created lots of rooms uh, for people to uh, react on on what have been uh, uh, I mean uh, what ha what uh, what have been done by by basically the religious scholars the mainly the that's called the extremist uh, religious scholars. Uh, there are reports from uh, UN Women uh, or from UNAMA, uh, uh, Human Rights Department, that they have already uh, uh, reported the report line of the, this type of cases have been increased because of the uh, people have been informed more uh, and they have been get lots of information from the not only media but also religious scholars in many uh, many international organizations and national local organizations are looking from on the women's issues from an Islamic perspective and that's why in these cases definitely these will be contributing to what we have found from this one and and now people are seeing these issues as a problem from from our perspective because before uh, even talking about women's issues, this was a kind of shame for a mullah or imam to talk about women's issues. But now you see that the, even the mullahs and imams are supporting the women participation, for instance, on the election processes or uh, uh, education, uh, which is we call this uh, obligatory uh, obligation for men and uh, female and male to be obligatory uh, responsibility of the male and female to get education. Um, I think, uh, just, I think um, we are moving to a little bit more ripe moment for discussing these type of issues that the people are really uh, bringing uh, these issues on to the um, kind of perception, but still, you know, they're thinking that these are the problems. And I think this is a positive sign from my perspective, because in 2000 and 2004, we were even not able to talk to some of the religious scholars, maybe Anisha Saib, you're also here, and uh, Ibrahim Saib, you're also. I think uh, this is something that we were not able to talk about these issues. But now I think it's, it's, uh, it's time to talk, and people are talking about these issues because of the uh, media was very uh, effective, bringing all of those cases, the very brutal cases of uh, raping the three-year-old uh, girl uh, in, in a baby, uh, let's say it's a baby, I mean. But you know, if this, this will be definitely continuously uh, uh, reporting these type of issues, I'm sure that the people will see it and will discuss it more. In, in a mm -hmm. And there are definitely different <coughs> other reports, like uh, uh, Human Rights Commission uh, annually reporting these type of cases, and uh, uh, they have annual report as well as the UNAMO. Next question. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Nehmazullah Ibrahimi. I'm a PhD student at Asia Pacific Political Diplomacy here. Thanks uh, for the panel for the excellent presentation and all the information. Uh, the question I have is like similar to what was asked earlier <coughs> the role of media and shaping public perception. <coughs> and this is uh, in a follow from my own experience when I was in Afghanistan, for example. 
the end of 2014 was becoming a very major issue. Like if you were watching your television at 6 p.m. news program, you often hear, you know, that 2014 at least like 10, 15 times. I wonder if it is like anything in the metas already, or are you thinking like if 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 we can capture what how like the media can shape uh, like public perceptions? Again, to give another example, there was once a boycott of Taliban, uh, you know, attacks on Kabul uh, during the election. And so we have, the, for example, I was here, I couldn't follow what was going on. At the same time, you were hoping for the best. So if there is something like that, or the, or the internet, is there like any measure or any objective data? Thank you. Yeah, two things I want to mention. First of all, it's a great question. Second of all, yes, TV media has a <coughs> Uh, third of all, all of our data is public. It's very easy to disaggregate among those who watch TV and those who don't on various social attitudinal issues. Uh, there are many PhD dissertations in the data. Uh, I'm getting one of them. I, you should get a few. Uh, to give you an example of what you could look at, when we did multivariate regression analysis using those looking at the impact of television after controlling for education, income, and other factors on whether uh, somebody supports women having equal access to education. We found that simply owning a TV, simply owning it, not even measuring what they watch or how many hours or anything, significantly increased the likelihood that they, were, they, they supported women getting equal access to university education as men. That was after controlling for education level, after controlling for income, after controlling for urban and rural, and everything we could find. So, so these sorts of things you can look at. You can look at it by internet, although that's mostly an urban phenomenon. You can look at it by uh, those who you know, use Shores and so on. Those who access radio actually are no more supportive of women than those who don't uh, use the radio as a primary source of news. So, but look into these issues. And the data is public. You can do a direct download on the website. If you go to the visualization, you can click directly download it. Yeah, one more thing as uh, supporting what Zach mentioned. Uh, we had another question whether the people are uh, preferring for women which type of dress the woman could uh, dress, I mean face particularly in dress up. You know, the, the people who are watching TVs, they are more supportive for my type of person <laughs> rather, than, rather than people who are who are not watching TVs. I mean, this is the, the media is really, and particularly the TV, uh, is uh, really changing the perceptions of the people. You could see that I'm a woman of beauty too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I, I'd like to make a couple of comments there. The main television station in Afghanistan is Tola Television, which is actually run by uh, a family of Afghan Australians. Uh, Saad Mosini in particular, and they have taken into Afghan television a great deal of what one finds on Australian television. I was delighted to see dubbed into Dari my favourite SBS Austrian police drama, Inspector Rex, you can watch that now on, on Afghan television. But the other point I wanted to make is I think what Zach said about the opportunities for multivariate analysis now is <coughs> tremendously important. If we have uh, uh, in the reports that come out about the survey, what are essentially crosstabs. But, but moving beyond that, there's a, a, a kind of golden opportunity to probe more deeply into the data and control for different variables and see which factors are statistically significant. Combined with that, we also have a large number of questions which have not changed in their wording 
uh, across the lifetime of the survey experience, which means that there's also an opportunity to do time series uh, analysis as well, going right back to the 2004 survey. So um, very few developing countries have actually had available to researchers a collection of material that allows for analysis as sophisticated as one can attempt when one begins to uh, analyse uh, these data uh, with, with modern statistical techniques. And yes. uh, I think that's probably the next phase of the life of the survey. Really, so. Yes, question. Uh, thank you. If I may ask two questions, because I just have one from that comment. Sorry, the entire world from the International Committee of the Red Cross. Um, I was interested in what you were saying um, about the impact of even owning a television compared to what people might be listening to. And you said it was other factors such as education were taken into account. But I'm just intrigued because in your presentation you showed a big difference in urban-rural um, ownership of TV compared to radio. So does that mean <coughs> people in more urban areas who are watching TV are more likely to support uh, certain types of views? Um, but my question also was, I'm very interested in the responses relating to the ANA and the ANP. Um, and I'm wondering, given the time lapse for the results, um, also in light of the violent incidents last month in <coughs> Afghanistan, the media have been reporting, media reports have attributed some of the motivation um, in terms of um, what coalition forces might be doing beyond 2014 in terms of extending the mandate. So there was a time where people were thinking, okay, end of 2014 and the troops should be leaving. What kind of impact do you think that would have had on the, on these attitudes that you've reported? Well, the quick response on urban-rural dynamic is uh, we control for that. Even, yeah. even when you control for that and you control for education, simply owning a TV still has an impact. Yeah, uh, so. Yeah, just wondering if that's really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What actually surprises me is how deep the penetration of television in rural areas is beginning to yep. become too. The, the proportion of respondents in rural areas who got their, who had television as a significant source of political information before the presidential election is very high, actually. Yeah. Right, for recollection, close to 50%. Yeah. That's, that's pretty dramatic in Afghanistan. Yeah, actually, this is an anecdotal comment. Suleiman Fatimi uh, is uh, someone I... I've known for many years, and he, his wife um, can go out in public. Uh, and I asked him once. I said, well, "Why do you, um, why are you somewhat liberal about uh, in your attitudes towards women?" And his wife, I think, also maybe works. And he said, "Well, you know, when I was a refugee in Peshawar, I had uh, there was a bazaar, and it had DVDs, and I, I found this DVD of, of this TV show called Friends." And I knew, I watched Friends, I didn't know that men and women could just be friends. I thought it had to be at some other relationship. So he said he learned a lot about how to interact with women from that TV show as a refugee. We have time for one final question, if anybody has one. Yes, one at the back. I wonder what you can tell us about the impact that these survey data and perhaps survey data from other institutions have had on decision makers. Are they being trusted? Do they have an impact? Do they eventually increase responsiveness of decision makers to those data? Or is it still in the very beginnings? Sorry. The impact of the surveys on policy. That, that's, this is an important one. Uh, you know, in, I think in Australia and other countries as well, a lot of times, even if data-driven governance is the goal, politics 
drives a lot of the interpretations of the data as well as the responses to it. Now, some people use data the way a drunk person uses lampposts as the same <laughs> for support rather than for illumination. And you know, I think the challenge that, that we've, we've seen is that many people, many ministers, don't have any knowledge, don't have really numerical literacy to uh, take the data and make it useful. For example, to say multivariate regression analysis, uh, they wouldn't know what that is. Even cross tabs yeah. would be a little bit advanced for them. How to calculate an average or a mean for some might be a challenge. So, so what we've been doing is, in addition to the survey, in addition to presenting it to the ministries, and, and many, in fact, almost all do find it useful, uh, or at least they say they find it useful, we're teaching them how to apply it and translate that into policy by teaching them some basic statistical skills. Because ultimately the questions that they ask of the data are as much more interesting to them than the questions that we ask of it. And you, know, you can ask the, again, it's really, the sky's the limit in terms of what you can do with the data. And I think if we can teach them to take the data and make something out of it, we, we've seen this to be very effective. We, we created an online visualization tool where people could do their own cross-tabulations, and they could do up to three different cross-tabs, and we gave it to some Afghan journalists, and they went wild with it. And they started doing their own analysis and then writing up stories using the analysis and quoting you know, their own analysis. And, and that's really where it gets, I think, exciting, when people can play with data, and it's accessible, and they don't need two years or three years of graduate training to do it, and come up with tangible results. Uh, one of the issues that uh, we have seen in the past years um, the only thing that we, uh, of course not uh, in, in all of the cases, but in few cases, like for instance the Supreme Court was sending us the letter, as you mentioned, about the accuracy of the data and, and trust on the data and the stuff. Okay, why you were thinking that, the, like for instance, why your data is saying that the, the judiciary is the most corrupt uh, institution? <laughs> But you know, they have put the long letter of, uh, I mean, just, uh, I mean, uh, asking the response uh, from our side, which I think this is not the only way of using the data, because this is the people can, but uh, on the launch of our survey, on the day that we launched the survey this year, Mr. Ashraf Bani was tweeted some of our data findings. It means that some of the people who really think that the data can change the policies or uh, can be used in the policies formation, then definitely. But we are trying our best to teach them how to use and how to apply the findings to the policy. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. So I think you'll agree we've had a fascinating insight into the surveys and what they can tell us about Afghanistan. So please join me in thanking our three speakers. been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.